Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us on Happy Path Programming. Today we have with us Sabine, who I um, really just met you on Twitter recently because everyone is talking about OCaml. So I was like, hey, let's have Sabine on and uh, learn about OCaml. And Bruce and I have over the last week uh, written some code in OCaml and explored it a bit. And so excited to have you on. Welcome, Sabine. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> and awesome. uh, yes, actually, I only became an OCaml org maintainer last year. Okay. In incidentally so pretty much one year of OCaml for me nice um, so what's what is your day job do you work on OCaml use OCaml what's what's uh yes what do you do normally in, in fact my day job is OCaml oh nice uh, and in, in fact it's OCaml org okay what's what is OCaml org that's the official uh, OCaml website okay which is written in OCaml <laughs> nice Awesome. Which is kind of the, the usual flex that every programming language has to go through, having their own website or some infrastructure written in itself. Yeah. The first step after you have your own compiler written in the language. Yeah. <laughs> how, how is it that you get to work on OCaml stuff as your day job? Luck. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, sheer, sheer luck uh, and being in the right place at the right time. Um, probably also credentials. Okay. So is there a company behind OCaml that's funding that work or how does that, how yeah, does that so work? Yeah, so there's there's multiple companies in, in, in the OCaml ecosystem that are funding OCaml development. Some of OCaml development is funded also by, uh, by research grants, but that's more on the compiler side. On the tooling side, uh, there's a handful of companies like Taridas, OCaml Pro, and a few others who, who contribute to this development. And I work at Taridas, who is very active in improving okay. the tooling at the moment. Okay. And also the stewards of the OCaml org website at oh, the cool. moment. Mm -hmm. Nice. And so you get to just improve the experience of OCaml and learning of OCaml as, as your day job. Yes, I do. And it's kind of a... Um, pretty demanding position in the sense that you, you are in this open source universe and you know that a lot of people will be very excited to do this job and they have high expectations on you yeah. in a good way. I mean, because you, you really want to do uh, a good job for them. Yeah. Positive pressure. Positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into OCaml? What's your, what's your story? Um, this is a longer story. <laughs> I'd love to so, hear it. So that starts with uh, studying computer science in, in the early 2000s. And where my was first that? language in Saarbrücken, um, Germany. Okay. So university that was uh, more, more heavy on theory. Um, and one of the universities that would start out in first year computer science by teaching standard ML. So I don't know if you have heard of or used standard ML, but this is basically some kind of OCaml light. Okay. So what's what's the it, connection between OCaml and standard ML? Because we hear, I've heard the terminology like, oh, Scala is in the family of ML languages or whatever. What does it actually mean to be like, yes. what, what is the ML family? <laughs> so there's a very rich academic tradition behind this that goes back to, to the type systems explored by Hindley and Milner. Um, 
and, and they came up with a type lambda calculus. Um, oh, I'm actually not even sure anymore. I forgot so much. I learned so much and I forgot so much. But there's always comes back to Hindley Milner. And if you want to go down this rabbit hole, it's a deep rabbit hole. So you can learn a lot about type lambda calculus, um, about statically typed functional programming languages where you have type systems that are very, very expressive, that allow you to model what your data looks like in a very fine-grained fashion, where you can describe units of data in, in such a way that you, you have these discriminated unions, these sum types, sometimes they're called variant types. So in OCaml, they're called variant types, <clears throat> where you say that uh, a value of a given data type is, for example, either uh, a success value has a certain shape, certain fields, or an error value has other fields. And you can model anything you want this way. Trees, graphs, um, JSON data. So from a practical perspective, you're mostly modeling <laughs> these kinds yeah. of more things that you see in the wild. Uh -huh. So the Henley-Milner, am I saying that right? Type system. So, yeah, so the type... This is like the type system calculus stuff was, this was decades and decades ago. And then yes. languages started, like more kind of academic languages started to try to implement those ideas. Is that the right way to say that? Yeah, that's, that's right, actually. So there were multiple languages that developed mostly in an academic setting because they were wonderful research projects. Mm. And one of these languages is, is OCaml that was created by Xavier Leroy in the 90s. It was in the 90s, yeah, okay. that's what so, it does. But, um, but, it, it but ML itself, when that was in the 60s, wasn't it? Yes, that's much older. So the general ideas underlying OCaml are much older even. Mm -hmm. huh. So OCaml became one of the ML family languages that, that took these ideas and, and tried to build a real language around them is that is that the, the yeah. accurate yeah yeah that's and, pretty accurate and the o so. is for object right yes so so this is objective camel so there was an, a language was earlier called camel mm -hmm. and ah. it became objective camel and it's actually quite fun to look at uh look at the old um the old website of that Huh. So I really like looking at stuff on the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, <laughs> looking at how how things looked like back in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, I was there for some of it, but I was not there for OCaml. So. <laughs> Do some archaeological digs into the past to see how we got <laughs> to where we are today. That is always fun. So it sounds like your experience was you went to this more theoretical computer science um, program and then when you saw camel o camel it was just no it, no it, not <laughs> at all so actually it was much 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 weirder uh, so uh, I happened to stick around in in academia until I after I had a PhD oh. uh, in formal verification so I, I kind of just swam along I didn't know what to do so I I, I didn't really even have the passion that you should usually have for a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, one day uh, I I just decided like okay I, I'm not going to stay in academia. It's it's not going to work for me. I'm 
I don't care enough about this whole um, institutional model. But <clears throat> this was after you got your PhD? This was after I got my PhD. Okay, so you were starting is... to teach and things? I should have been starting to teach. I was basically poised to go, um, go to Carnegie Mellon University on a research grant. Mm. So I successfully applied for that, but I couldn't see myself going there with a toddler and uh, with the U.S. Uh, standards of work ethics. Yeah. <laughs> so were you in your PhD program or before that, were you using OCaml and... and... <laughs> So no, no formal verification. There was, really, there was no really pretty much no OCaml for me until last year. And, and this makes it even more ironic considering how many people out there are really, really into OCaml and basically dying to get this job. Mm. Um, but but, you but had... on the other hand, what I did in the meantime, after I left my PhD that prepared me uniquely for this kind of opportunity <laughs> right i would think because like for me and my first i don't know functional language was quite a struggle at, <laughs> at, at the beginning but then the more i saw of it and the more i understood then like you you pick up a language and you go oh yeah i see what you're doing here and here and here and here mm -hmm. and you can actually have a pretty deep understanding fairly quickly so i would imagine with your background um, when you did start picking up OCaml, it was like, oh, a lot yeah. of familiarity. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So when you've used standard ML and when you have done a few proofs in Isabel Hall, which is a, a proof checker, huh. so automated I've never even heard of that prover. One. Is, Isabel, what was it? Uh, Isabel Hall? So it's basically at the time back then, it was the other one next to Cock. Okay. And, and Cock is more on the OCaml side. Um, and Isabel was more on the standard ML side. Ah. Ah. So, so obviously that gives you some some intuition for how to use this and how to write pure functions, how to write recursive functions, how to do the FP things. Yeah. Okay. So you were doing this in at least in the PhD side with Isabel, and then were you using other ML languages before you got into OCaml, or was it mostly yes. that? Yes. In fact, I did. Yeah. And in fact, I on my journey, I passed OCaml by because it looked to have such a small community, because it looked to be so secluded, so uh, hard to get into in, in terms of <clears throat> available ecosystem, in terms of being able to, to reach people, talk to people back then. But yeah. that was in, in 2015, 16, when I looked at OCaml uh -huh. for a moment uh -huh. and passed it by. Where'd Which you go? Where'd you go instead? Haskell. <laughs> okay. Oh, ah, okay. okay. So the journey to Haskell. So you yeah. were doing Haskell for a while. So it sounds like your world is basically <laughs> heavily functional languages. Uh, not, not really, because the first thing I did after I, I threw away academia and said no more of this was that I wanted to build uh, a website for people that saw in Python Django. <laughs> all the things and and i learned a lot from that the good and the bad <laughs> the good about me and the bad about me <laughs> because when you don't write tests in python you are not going to have a good time <laughs> right and, and i was... did not want to write tests and were <laughs> you doing this before 
Python had type annotations? Yes, type annotations in uh, Python were very, very alpha, not usable actually okay. at this point. Yeah, uh, so and I think it's been a while to go from like formal verification ML stuff to like the total <laughs> wild west of Python dynamic typing. Yes. Mm -hmm. it's like hopping <laughs> to the other end of the universe. Yes, right. So it was also hopping from from the one side, from the academic universe to the universe of okay, we are going to do this solo bootstrapper thing. Where, where we build something and have a lot of people use it and pay us for it. Uh, yes, it's not that simple. You can't be naive yeah. even when you have a PhD, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so as part of your thinking, I don't need to write tests because, you know, why would I write tests? I write types. Uh, right, when, but this is not true either. So uh, you, you sh should still test some things, but <laughs> there's a lot of things you don't need to test when you have types. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so you, you did some, some work in Python and, and then passed by OCaml and then went to Haskell. What was your, what was your experience like in Haskell? Well, in Haskell, you have this kind of steep learning curve in terms of uh, getting through this wall of thing. How do I deal with these different monads? How do I, how do I make it compile and run? So I know what I want to do. I, I have a tutorial in front of me, and then I have some not immediately obvious type errors. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> So I read a lot of Monad tutorials. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that was helpful. Well, well, actually it was at some point. Like okay. when you do it often enough, it works. Like you, you just have to be really stubborn and you have to want it. <laughs> or you have to have someone who shows you what to do. I, I didn't. But that yeah. was cool because you can make up a lot by being just stubborn and keep trying doing and reading different things. That's generally my strategy is I just go, I know it was just from my physics background, which I didn't understand very well at the time, but I knew that if I just kept flinging myself at the problem, eventually something would give. And so that's the strategy I've used for everything else. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So the strategy is um, read many things about monads and this is at least my strategy, still not understand them. And then as soon as I did understand them, I'm going to write my own Monad tutorial, which I did. Oh, you, yeah. I never saw yeah, that. Yeah, it's on my blog. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't. And of course, that just adds to the corpus of Monad tutorials <laughs> that, that, yeah. Yeah, don't, that mm. ultimately aren't helpful or something. But, mm. um, but so, okay, Haskell and, and uh, some, some beating your head against Monads. Um, any other part to that journey before you get to OCaml? Well, not so much, I think. So, well, there was also Elm. There was also oh, Elm. Oh, you did some so Elm. So actually, nice. I did Elm before Haskell. Yeah. Because I wanted to build great user experience. I wanted to build something interactive, something that Django couldn't, I believe Django couldn't do. Or at least Django plus my mess of Frankensteinish jQuery <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, publicly available libraries couldn't yeah. do. Uh, nowadays, uh, I think that's a much more nuanced thing. Yeah. Um, for me, Elm was, I haven't done any Haskell, but for me, Elm, I when I did Elm, I'd been doing some functional programming 
and but it hadn't used the Haskell style syntax. And I, I really liked Elm and I would much rather build a web app in Elm than jQuery and Python. Mm. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, just the way I wanted to build the web app, it was not very suitable for Elm. So yeah. I wanted to do this single page app thing where you had the bookmarkable uh, URLs, where uh, you had the proper URL parsing, basically. Uh -huh. uh, it worked. But it got pretty slow in compiling because I just wanted to do everything. And yeah. this is not how you use Elm. So Elm is more like you, you make smaller components. You, you make individual pages and then have the interactivity for them implemented in Elm. That works very well. And that's incidentally also the use case that No Red Ink had for mm. Elm, that they have lots of small components. And Elm is wonderful for that and still yeah. is despite people declaring it dead. I don't think it's dead. Hmm. It's but still very solid. It's not great for single page applications. Yeah, so for, for single page applications, you have to, to deal with, with a lot of these uh, data loading. Uh, you get very, very huge um, case switches depending on which page are you on. If you do the, the, the real single page application. Kind of the, the router, the like client side router. Right, the router, the data loading um, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Other than that, it works actually quite fine. But it does seem like Elm is, is probably a great path to Haskell. Like if yes. you want to learn Haskell, Elm might well, be a good O'Camel. place to start. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So maybe my Elm experience helped me with uh, the OCaml that, that we've been I, I would say, I mean, certainly yeah. some of the things like, you know, initially the syntax, if you've never seen that alternative syntax without the parentheses and without the commas for function calls, that's a little jarring. Mm. But once you're used to it, yeah, the like curried function yeah, style. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, but at first it's like, oh, yeah. uh, this is too weird. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, possibly. Yeah, and for a lot of people uh, having to write recursive functions instead of for loops or while loops, <laughs> that is quite mind bending. Yeah. So that Elm is a wonderful entry drug. Is, yeah. yeah. I'm still... I know that that's often in tutorials on functional programming. The recursive function is often the first thing. <laughs> One they of the do. first things. Yeah. And I had trouble with that. And also, it gives you the impression that you're going to be writing a lot of recursive functions. But then eventually, and correct me if I'm wrong, I felt like, oh, the recursion is actually built into. A lot of the functors. A lot of the things like map and, yeah, you know, correct. all those things. So maybe it's not the first thing that you want to show people because I think it it gives yeah. people the wrong yeah. impression and drives them away. Right. You can show them a fold and then you could go write yes. your own fold with recursion. <laughs> but not right away. You know, yeah. just say, here's yeah. a tool that you use, the fold. But yeah. um, later well, on... Even, even earlier, starting even earlier, just, just the list map. I mean, the list map yes. is now in every language. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. A language that doesn't have this is um, it's rare nowadays. So. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Show them how to use the the how to the higher, how you level, would, the higher level tools, and then in a later Peel chapter, back the covers say, to, oh, "Hey, and recursion. let's see how this works and why it works and everything." Mm. But um, I've seen so many tutorials that go, "Oh, yeah. recursion! Let's <laughs> let's get oh, yeah. it exciting! Yeah. Isn't that exciting?" And then. Yeah. Tail recursion optimization, you need to understand that yeah. at this point. And, and then I feel like, 
you know, you've lost 90% of your... Uh, right, exactly. Th that's the thing. That's that's right. also the thing about Haskell. Haskell is very front-loaded in teaching because it's coming <laughs> from this academic background, from this background of having having joy in exploring these models. Mm -hmm. But most of the people out there, and including me, they, mm -hmm. they really didn't want to explore these models. They want yeah. to do something. They want to change the world and build yeah. something. Yeah. Right. And so, so you have to show them, like, where are the, the baby steps? Where is the first rungs of the ladder to building something that the world cares about? Yes. Actually, that kind of segues into our onboarding experience with OCaml. Oh, yes. Uh, always very, very interested in hearing that dear. because uh, my colleague is spending a lot of time writing better uh, tutorials. Um, okay, all, there's still a lot to do. Yeah. We, yeah, I mean, we followed the, um, you know, just the installation instructions. And as usual, James refused to just take a curl <laughs> command. And yeah, that's safe. Again, so, so we had to switch to Nix <laughs> so that he could create this environment that he knew would just vanish and not mess around with any of his... In Regular and it all worked great, and Nick's, it worked. Yeah, what, surprisingly, Nick's, it's Nick's not always support. Yeah, yeah, don't always know if that's going to yeah. work with things. But so we were safe. But then the next page was um, your first day with OCaml, which <laughs> sounded a little intimidating. But <laughs> we... I can tell you a funny story about this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Originally, wanna... this was named your first hour with OCaml, <laughs> and uh -huh. it was not shorter. <laughs> Not short enough to do. For it an was hour. not shorter than this. Okay, it was still a day's worth of work. Understandable. But. <laughs> that wasn't too big of a hurdle, to be honest. But, but then we almost immediately ran into, well, what was it? Oh, I know. There were. Speaking of recursion, that was actually one of the original examples in your Fib first day with OCaml. Was it Fibonacci or was it something else? It was, no. Was it I think Fibonacci. it was Fibonacci. Was it Fibonacci? Yeah, Fibonacci. it was a Fibonacci generator. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and there was a keyword that wasn't explained that we guessed at, which was REC. Let rec. Well, oh, yeah, yes, let, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yes. and it was like, so I had to guess, but I, you know, we... We, we asked it. we asked ChatGPT for a lot of explanation. Yeah, we started <laughs> asking Chat for uh, for things. We came up with the idea that uh, you know, just like their uh, language, what do they call them that plug into your editor language? Oh, LSP. Yeah, language language server protocol. Language server mm -hmm. protocol. There should be the equivalent for programming languages. You, you should should have be able to have your own dedicated. Yeah. Uh, Machine learning. Yeah, your own chat GPT for that language. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That would that would plug into your That will be a game changer. Yes, well, it will be. I'm yeah. sure that it'll happen. Will, yeah, will, sure. Will be absolutely so um but, let's talk about OCaml the language. Mm -hmm. One yes. of the things that we are curious about is like what's like the the big selling point or big differentiator with OCaml that's like in the realm of not academia, but usefulness to programmers? Well, in a sense, OCaml is positioned um, in, in a quite interesting position. It has a type system that is simpler than TypeScript. And nowadays, huh. a lot of people are putting up with TypeScript in order to, to be able to write huge 
web applications to write huge server-side applications with Node.js and TypeScript, or with Dino and TypeScript eventually. Um, and TypeScript had to make some, some sacrifices in, in terms of its type system to, to, um, to wrap JavaScript. Yeah. Correctly. There's some real constraints there on what they could do. Yes, yes. So, so learning TypeScript is actually, and use, learning to use TypeScript in, in a properly safe way, it's actually a non-trivial endeavor. And there's a lot of people teaching it, which is good because I still think this is a much better way to work with bigger systems than just using JavaScript. Yeah. And it's also much better than most of the other alternatives. Yeah. And OCaml is in a, in a better position in this regard because it's it's coming from this Hindley-Milner type lambda calculus uh, systems where you have a type system that has been built in from the start and where the language has been designed to find a compromise between what language does and how you can express that in the type system. So. There's a much much lower learning curve for OCaml's type system, I would argue. Yeah, because there's not so many special cases because of the compromises. Right, there's not so many special cases because of the compromises, not so many oddities that you have to do, or not so many features that they had to retroactively add in order, for example, to get exhaustive pattern matching to make the compiler check that you're really checking for every single case that your, your data can have. Yeah. So one of the big selling points is a very powerful type system that is learnable easily. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, I would argue so. I mean, there needs to be good teaching materials. So that's that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, luckily, did we, there's, in our explorations, there's did we have to explicitly set any types? I don't think we did. I think everything was inferred. In oh, our, I think that's one of the things about ML languages is that oh, they not necessarily, not, not all of oh, them really? have this powerful type inference. So there's, there's ML languages where you really have to annotate a lot. So you have to do it like the Rust way, write the function signatures, write the type signatures on these. But in OCaml, uh, they, they went for a design decision in the language to, to try and do as much type of inference as they can so that you don't have to annotate so much. Uh, but do you still, are there special cases that you're still forced to annotate? Yes, there are, uh. there are cases where you, you should do that. And, and there are cases where you get really not so nice error messages when you don't. So mm. when you learn OCaml, it's, it's a lot about seeing okay, how much type annotations do I need? Or when does a type annotation help me when debugging? Or mm. when is it so obvious that I just, I just omit it because the code is shorter, more readable? Yeah. <clears throat> so is that, just a little aside, is that something that can be proven one way or another that, oh, no matter how sophisticated your type system, there will always be special cases where you're forced to, tell the compiler what this type is? Um, well, there, there is something called decidability. Ah. So uh, some type systems are undecidable, and Haskell for sure uh, has an undecidable type system. Huh. Below Camel, I'm not even sure at the moment. And it's not Whether the part I care about a lot. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so sure. I just care. You're done that... with the theory stuff at this point. <laughs> right. I'm. Yeah. I, I'm kind of a. But for 
practical uses, OCaml has a, a mathematically based type system that should be easy to learn and provides uh, really strong type inference. Right, and it provides really strong guarantees. So unlike TypeScript, it doesn't have, have any or unknowns or such. Uh -huh. So uh, you, you have everything typed. That, that was actually one thing we, we explored was, okay, if I create a list that contains a string and an int, um, is it going to up-level this type to some common thing that is string and int? No, and not OCaml unless is like, you tell nope. it. <laughs> it's nope. just like, compile error, you can't do that. Right. Um, you can do it, but you have to use some, some feature from the type system to do it. Yeah. Okay. You have to like so create your own type. You so have to create your own type that has these these different. Models. Would that be a product um, type? Would you have a product type? You could do this as a product type, or you, depending on how you use it, you could also do this as a GADT, which is oh. something kind of magical. So, yeah. but but not that magical. <laughs> it's, it's like so ADT. This is this is the the product type or the sum type, where you have different cases, different variants, how the data looks. And GADT is something more general than that. It looks similar, but it's more general than that. Yeah. Uh, and this goes in the direction of existential types, <laughs> where you can actually hide a type parameter within another type to make it look like it's just one type. Yeah. So this is, this is quite magical. Yeah. But you don't need it. So the Go people have proven that you don't need this. They are dealing <laughs> on a much more concrete level. Yeah. And in OCaml, you can work basically at the level of Go very well. You can write fine code at the level of, of what Go's type system does, just that OCaml does it better in a sense. So yeah. Go is, is very weak with some types, with these unions. Uh, I feel like they, they really have to patch this up and they really have to fix this and bring this missing feature into the language and that it's a fine language. Yeah. I, I do appreciate languages when you can start with very familiar kind of basic type system usage, but then as you want more power, you can reach for it to existential types or phantom types or, you know, all the other kind of powerful type system things. And, and yeah, I think with, with Go, my experience is like, oh, I really wish I had this feature, this other kind of type system feature at some point, and it's just not there. And so I'm glad that, yeah, OCaml and Scala and others kind of have these more advanced type system features that when you need them, you can at least get them. <laughs> same, same. That's how I feel about Go. Yeah. Mm. So, um, any other, like any other things about OCaml that are, that are kind of in that value proposition yeah. area of like, like why developers should be interested in OCaml? Well, it's a, it's a compiled language. It has a, a bytecode, uh, compiler that produces bytecode that can run be interpreted on different platforms. So it's portable in that sense. It has also multiple native backends. So the only thing that I would say in terms of um, platform support that's not great yet is Windows, but it's getting there. So work is being done on that. Nice. And it has a pretty fast compiler. So people are always surprised how fast OCaml compiles when they are coming from, say, Rust or Haskell or C++. Or such. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, we noticed it was. It seemed yeah. to be extremely fast. Yeah, but I I've always thought that oh, if you do all this advanced type system stuff and you do all this amazing type inference, that your compiler had to be slow. But OCaml is kind of showing that no, that's not the case. Like, there, how does it yeah. that OCaml's been able to do all the amazing type system stuff without the slow compiler? Well, it doesn't do all the amazing type system stuff like Haskell does. So mm -hmm. it doesn't do higher kind of types. Okay. Uh, it it just doesn't do do a lot of things that become hard to check. Okay. And, and that's that's what put it in an interesting position that it's in between. So it's it's in no place. It's the language that excels or that, that really pushes the boundary in a huge way. It's just the language that sits in kind of a sweet spot. Uh, in, in the trade-offs that you have to make between like compile time speed uh, versus uh, more powerful type features um, in, in the trade-off between runtime speed and I don't know, more yeah. more something. So it's you wouldn't pitch OCaml as having the most advanced type system ever no 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 actually it, it, i would anti-pitch it because <laughs> when you are tired of the most uh, <laughs> most expansive type system then then you're the person who would enjoy a camera so when you have done rust and you've seen like oh i love rust it's so fast it's wonderful but you have to do all these types you have to write all these types all these uh clones all these lifetimes and it can be really distracting. So for some projects, it's really worth it. You need to squeeze out the performance. You cannot afford a garbage collector. Then do Rust. That's wonderful. But yeah. when you're doing something like web development, where it's mostly I.O. bound, where you're waiting on the database, where you're waiting on the HTTP request, where you're doing all this kind of waiting, yeah. there is really no point to carry the burden of having to write all these types. Instead, you're in a situation where you, you're developing something that you want people to use. And people, they give feedback. And they, they are really, really happy when you react to that feedback and when you can make a quick change, when you don't have to like rearrange and refactor your types and yeah. do all these things that you have to do in order to... Uh, to do a full refactor on a on a language with a very powerful type system. Mm. Yeah. So um, there are some kind of extensions, is maybe not the right way to say it, of OCaml that I've come across that I'd like to to learn more about. Mm -hmm. Which is we I've seen the Reason ML stuff and Cock and how what's the orientation between those and OCaml? Okay, so um, Coq is an um, automated th theorem prover. So it's basically a similar thing as Isabel Hall, where you write proofs and you, you perform these proofs by applying logic rules or having the, the tool apply logic rules to the point where it doesn't know what to do. And, and you're you talking it. about just any mathematical proof. You're not talking about something... Uh, constrained um, to computer science or what, what are yes, the constraints? Yes, both. both. So, so with Coq you can do any mathematical proof but you can also prove properties about programs which is the thing that's very popular to do uh, in, in highly safety critical industries. Huh. 
huh. like uh, automotive, medical, um, these kinds of industries where you have to have your product certified. Uh, you can write code in in Cog, and you can write proofs in Cog, and then you can generate OCaml code, for example, and run that. And this OCaml code is proven to obey the specification you wrote in Cog. So basically, this is a this is a much more strange, stringent way of, of writing writing tests. You could imagine it like that. So when you write a test, you're testing some inputs and some outputs. Whereas with formal verification, you're making a proof over all inputs and all the outputs. Mm -hmm. So the coverage is is just uh, on a different level mm. when you do formal verification. But this is something that, that only affects the people who work in these industries and these jobs are fairly rare. Yeah. So ReasonML, that's something that's much closer to, I think, what the majority of us have to deal with and want to deal with. <laughs> And uh, that I don't really know the history of all of this very well. But in short, there is uh, an alternative syntax for OCaml. So at some point, uh, a, a community broke off from OCaml to say that, well, we disagree with OCaml's syntax. We, huh. we don't like that it's so alien to the average programmer. We don't like that the JavaScript developer can't just take it and write code and we can show them and they are familiar. Instead, people get this kind of angsty reaction seeing like, oh, this syntax, it looks unfamiliar. I'm, I'm a bit worried. Can I read this? Can I understand this? And this is what, what reason am I? Um, okay. So, or the reason Trying syntax. Trying to bring a more familiar syntax to it. Yes. How much of the like OCaml foundational toolchain compiler, all that kind of stuff, is shared to Cock and ReasonML? Um, is is there so, a common foundation, or are these kind of separate worlds? Or yeah. So, as I understand, ReasonML makes heavy use of the OCaml compiler, so they are very close, and we're sharing a lot. Uh, in this regard. Uh, Cock, however, that's a different application. So it's okay. just basically an OCaml application. So Cock uh, is written in OCaml. Got it. Okay. But a different syntax, different compiler. And then, as you said, you can take Cock and trans, like, do some transpilation or something down to OCaml, um, but, but essentially a different. Yeah, so Cock is actually a very rich academic ecosystem and academic and used in highly safety critical industries. So, uh, for example, there was uh, there was the CompCert project to certify uh, a small C compiler to to prove that it compiles the code correctly huh. to to assembly code through multiple layers uh, of intermediate representation. So that's pretty impressive projects. Yeah. Um, but a lot of this formal verification is, is not quite so ergonomic that you, you could do this at scale or that you would find people easily who can do this at scale. So you can teach people, but it's slower than, than writing just the program when you have yeah. to write the program and prove the correctness or when you have to express the program in this other language, then prove the correctness over that, generate mm. code. Hmm. But re so reason ML is a is a prover as well. No, reason ML is not a prover. So reason ML is just like an alternative uh, syntax to OCaml, and it comes oh. with a community that is very practical minded. So lots of great things have 
have come to the OCaml ecosystem thanks to the Reason community who were very interested in like using React safely from OCaml. So there's a wonderful project, Reason React, that wraps React in OCaml so that you or in Reason. So mm -hmm. nowadays. So Reason ML is kind of like um kind of like OCaml with a more approachable syntax or more familiar syntax. Yes, with more brackets, I think. Oh, okay. More brackets. So, <laughs> 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 hmm, I see. Well, I mean, so far from what I've heard, the most interesting, you know, the, the thing that OCaml does that's kind of unique is proving correctness. And I can see, I mean, like, I don't know any other you know, system, I'm at least I'm unaware of any other system that could do that. And, and so um, with varying degrees of, of complexity. So mm -hmm. it sounds like if you go all the way to cock, you can prove, yes, you can have proofs, but it's a but, lot of work, but it seems like, I mean, could that be used for like security, um, you know, validating the correctness of your security system well, or something like that? Depends. I mean, usually security is in the plumbing or security issues are in the plumbing, right? So, mm -hmm. and the plumbing isn't usually the thing that you verify unless you mm -hmm. first establish a verified platform that verifies all the plumbing through all the layers, um, which is in principle doable, but it's a giant project, mm -hmm. giant yeah. project and very, very uh hard to do at an industrial scale. I mean, there's there's things out there, but I haven't been in the loop on that. Okay. But what I like... do see is like they have wonderful applications for this kind of uh, verified software. For example, uh, satellites in space. Mm. So you only get one chance to deploy <laughs> into production. So you want to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's obviously a wonderful use case for a language that can be fully formally verified uh, and has been exceptionally stable and backwards compatible over the last decades. So it sounds like one of the kind of killer features of of OCaml is the ability to to um, in varying degrees prove the correctness of programs and going all the way to cock if you want to like like get go to the extreme end of that but even just base ocaml gives you the ability to to prove correctness in a in a in a good way <laughs> well i think that's yeah, like one of the killer features or it is one of the killer features but the use cases are not a lot so we really want to to have more killer features of ocaml and i think web is web is a is a pretty good one like ocaml has a wonderful graphql library like, I don't know. Have you have you used GraphQL in Angular? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> like, I I I like some of the ideas of it, but yeah, I think generally the the times I've used it, it, it felt like a struggle. So maybe yes. if OCaml can make GraphQL not feel like a struggle, that would be nice. So actually, OCaml is the first language where I felt that GraphQL was not a struggle. Because it had a good good library, and it had a good library. It has a good library that makes use of the type system in such a way that you can declare the schema in such a way that you're actually forced to obey the schema. Mm. And when you know you obey the schema, that's uh, 
that's pretty nice. So you know at compile time that you obey the schema. Nice. So not at runtime and something crashes and yeah. unexpected stuff happens, but at compile time. Huh. And there's a pretty nice blog post well. series. There's a wonderful blog post series. Mm -hmm. I keep shilling that one because yeah. I would like to read it again because it also shows like the feature GADTs. So, yeah. so, the, nice. so how, how you can use GADTs to model these uh, GraphQL schemas. Huh. And at okay. the point where you have a verified yeah. or, 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 or a cor correct GraphQL schema, then you can use the, the code generation technology from the JavaScript TypeScript ecosystem to generate typed bindings uh -huh. for your TypeScript code. And you connect to, to all the existing ecosystem yeah. that people already use. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. That sounds, so, does sound um, like maybe one of the other potential killer features is kind of uh, correctness with GraphQL. <laughs> yeah, or correctness with, with mostly anything, like correctness in, in database access. So mm. there's still there's still room to explore. But when I when I compare what I used in Rust for database access, for, for type safe database access. Well, it wasn't really fully type safe yeah. because it's kind of kind of hard to to get this right in terms of ergonomics, like these mm -hmm. kind of uh, database wrappers, these schema, um, these SQL builders. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm pretty sure no one wants an ORM anymore these days. <laughs> I think mostly <laughs> it's been kind of shown to be not it too too restrictive. Like yeah. not everything maps to objects. Right, exactly. And that's not what you do in OCaml in general. So you don't deal with with objects, you deal with values and you deal with functions operating on them. So it's mm -hmm. it's a much simpler way of thinking instead of thinking about an object that has methods on it. You you just have data. And like in C, yeah. you just have data. This is what I like about C. Yeah. Only having data. Yeah. Well, and I think taking inheritance out of the picture, like Go and Rust, oh, and yes. I think OCaml. Does OCaml have inheritance? No, OCaml oh, doesn't okay. do inheritance. So OCaml yeah. markets itself as the rehab rehabilitation clinic for the OOP program. Right, exactly. No, <laughs> so... I, I find that um, taking inheritance out of the picture seems obvious in hindsight. <laughs> no, like... but it was kind of looking cool back then, right? Oh, so, yeah, at first like, it was like, but we didn't understand what the limitations were, what the trade-offs were. And and like also, I think because of small talk where they just, everything was inheritance and everything was inheritance and adding methods to mm -hmm. these things, which is like, how does that balance with the Liskov substitution principle? It doesn't. Yeah. Um yeah, we, we didn't really get all that. At first, it was just all shiny mm -hmm. and, oh, look, you can do everything like in Smalltalk. But with the constraints that we had, you couldn't. You yeah. couldn't. It wasn't Smalltalk. Well, and, and I think it took us a while to realize that, oh, it took us that we can adequately model what we need with some types and product types. <laughs> and if you, yeah, and instead of inheritance, you use composition. Yeah. And yeah, and that per works perfectly well. Yeah. I want to ask a, a really basic question because when we were going through the onboarding, we in immediately came across the double semicolon 
And the, oh, yes. the one thing that it said was, you have to put this in here. It's essential. But there was no description of what does it mean? Right. And we, okay. we couldn't yes. find it. Yes. So I think this this will most likely be resolved when we when we push the the work in progress tutorial live. But oh, yes, nice. this is a this is a, a an idiosyncrasy of the REPL. So of UTOP or of the OCaml REPL where you write an expression yeah. and where you have to tell it where the expression ends. So it's basically Makes just so like in, in Postgres, you also have to end with a semicolon. Uh, yeah, and it's no. the same thing. So just you're that just telling the REPL reason. that I'm done with my expression. I'm oh. done with my expression. That's all it says. Okay. But yes. when you're in a source file in VS Code. You no, you don't do this. You don't need it. because No, you, you don't do this. Yeah, I say that. Um, God, so, that okay, well, that's helpful. For... But I would just like to, I mean, since it seems like you're working on some of this stuff, I would like to put in a request, which is yes. don't use the REPL to show your examples use files that can because one of the things about it is like i'm looking at the repl code and i'm going has how is how are how are they testing that mm. whereas if you oh, have yeah. standalone files you know if you're testing it by typing it in and checking it then then it's going to get out of sync automated testing of the yes, code that's automated automated there's, uh, there's, uh, there's some some work on testing this in an automated fashion Nice. Well, I think you're you're right. So, what we what we want to do is we want to make this runnable. So yeah. we yeah. we want to make these um, run in a little yeah. interpreter in the browser so that you can click play and then it's yes. giving yeah. you your response. That's cool. But this is uh, there's no ETA for this. Yeah. But yeah. that's that's the plan. Nice. Okay. How does OCaml work? Well, uh, a little background. I'm fascinated with rust but only in the to the degree that i can make python extensions with rust which is the first and only language i've been easily able to create python i've tried it in mm -hmm. c and all that it's always run into problems rust just works so i don't want to write big rust programs or at least that's not where i am mm -hmm. now but as extensions to python so as what I saw in the OCaml docs is that it works well with C. Yes, but, it does. But I'm not so interested in, you know, working C with up. C. You're interested yeah, yeah, in no, that's, that's yeah. the person who's more interested in working with C is the OCaml dev who wants to do heavy number crunching or wants to use libraries from the C ecosystem. Right. So, so yes, there's a big gap in terms of showing how to do the FFI with popular languages that are mm. slower than OCaml. So right, for right. whom OCaml can be the faster one. Or slower or not as... Um, not as safe. Not as safe, exactly. Yeah. So if I go, oh, here's, here's a piece of my program that I am worried about safety. Oh, okay, now that might com compel me to say, all right, let's do that piece in OCaml. But what's the... What's the story for connecting? Is it is it just C? Is that just the way it is, or are there mm. is there any kind of tooling to help me? Or this is a good question. I don't know. So I've okay. never tried to integrate with Python. So I think it's possible. So someone else has uh, integrated mm. with Rust, right? Used Rust from uh, Rust libraries uh, in their OCaml application. But there's a re oh, in their OCaml. Oh, I see. They use Rust. Yeah, yeah. They, they use, but the other way around too. So between mm -hmm. OCaml and Rust, there's interesting work ongoing to to formalize both of their their memory model mm -hmm. boundary 
so they can interact safely. Hmm. But this is not not something that's uh, yeah. very available yet. Um, so there's another thing that I came across in the documentation, which is this is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. Something that has gotten into the general programming world is <clears throat> the use of the term variable mm. to mean oh, anything. Yes. And <laughs> yes, it means anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Oh, no, it's a variable <laughs> that you can't change or something. An immutable variable. Yes, it's an immutable variable. And it's like, that just drives me crazy because those words are diametrically opposed. And I have noticed the use. Of, well, and it's confusing when you're looking into it and they say, oh, and you use this variable and this variable. And my question is, is it variable or <laughs> is it um, is it immutable? So, no, in fact, in fact, it's it's immutable unless it's a reference to the heap, unless, a, unless immutable what? reference, unless it's a mutable reference okay. to some some kind of structure on the heap. And so you say mute or something for, to make uh, that ref mute. ref. So you can do let x equals ref zero to get a, ah, a reference okay. that points at an integer that you can modify at runtime. I prefer Rust's mute to ref because yeah. ref. Ref just tells me, oh, this is a reference to that. It doesn't tell me anything about the mutability of it. So, oh it's... well, but the mute is on the type. So here, the ref is is the value. So it's it's uh -huh. part of the the, the expression. Uh -huh. But your type actually then becomes mute of int or thing? something, or it doesn't. So I think it's also named ref or something. Okay. Uh, I I didn't do a lot of the, yeah. the mutable stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'm actually, in some some regards, yeah, well. I'm very much an OCaml newbie. Because OCaml has all these different features that mm -hmm. you don't have to use. So yeah, you can right. write, you can do very well with a very small subset of OCaml. So mm -hmm. kind of like Elm plus. Yeah. So that I, would be the tutorial that I would want to see is what is this subset that you can do very well in? Oh, and maybe mm -hmm. specifically like you're mentioning Elm is the another possible um, value of, of OCaml is look at build, using OCaml to build a web application or something like that in a way that you would maybe do with Elm, but doing with OCaml in some subset of all the power. Mm. Um, be interesting. Yeah, that could be compelling. Uh, I did want to highlight the features of OCaml as we were learning about it. Um, that I, I thought were great. Yeah, I think every when we were going through learning OCaml, we we're like, okay, great. It has product in some types. It has type inference. It has exhaustive pattern matching. Uh, we dug into a bit the concurrency and parallelism. We're like, yes, this you know being able to do um, joins on on threads and tasks. Uh, yes, the, this the is brand new. This. Yeah, and it <laughs> it all looked good. I think. You know, looking at it, it's like, okay, it has like all the modern language features that I would hope uh, any, you know, every language has today. Um, the one feature that we were like, eh, was uh, exceptions. And I'm curious oh, your yeah. perspective on it. On, well, like, is that just a legacy thing that like people don't use anymore? Or what's, what's the story on so, exceptions? So, 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 clear it depends. Very clear it depends. Because, I mean, with exceptions, it's like you have to cover your, your basis. You really have to be a nice person because when yeah. you when you write a library that throws exceptions you have better written very good documentation but instead mm. i would prefer if you would return result types 
Yeah. So exactly. you can do exceptions within your library because they are fast. So they are just faster than threading around all the results and everything yeah. because it's uh, like uh, interrupt and like handler and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's just naturally faster. And for that, it's fine. And you can use them responsibly. And in some places, it's actually quite convenient. So when you are writing a web uh, application, uh, in, in Rust, you, you have to thread your, your error types all the way through. Mm-hmm. On the positive side, Rust gives you a lot of power here. Uh, it has the, the question mark operator to automatically try to convert the error types using the trade that you provide. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty pretty fine. But OCaml doesn't have this kind of error operator uh-huh. uh, and instead comes from, from a legacy of having these exceptions instead. Yeah. And is now a, it has even expanded on exceptions by adding effect handlers, which is like a more general thing that allows you to, to do this kind of resumable computation, this resumable stack switching computation. Um, so is there a way to guarantee that you handle all possible exceptions? Unfortunately not. And that's why I strongly recommend any library author to use the result type instead, because then it's part of the function signature and your user will be happy and thankful that you did. Right. Because then your type system, it's part of your type system. It's part of your type system. I really like that Rust doesn't have exceptions and more or less forces you to use the result type. So in the world of OCaml, Maybe the exceptions are in a place similar to mutability. It's like if you need if you need this for some reason, yeah. do it in your little constrained world, but mm. don't expose it to your caller. And yep. I think that yeah, exceptions and mutability maybe are in that same boat of like, sure, you you can use these more powerful maybe uh, when you need some performance benefit or something, but don't expose that to your caller. Yeah, sandbox everything uh, inside. I think that may be a general principle. I mean, I feel like I, I encountered mm-hmm. that in the Red Book where they were saying... This is the Scholar Red Book. Oh, sorry. The <laughs> oh, yeah, Red Book, sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where they were saying, okay, so here's how recursion works. And then at the lowest level, but hidden from everybody, there's mutability that's mm-hmm. happening. And you're going, what? Mutability? That's not okay. And then you see this principle. It's like mutability, which is a, a, a thing that is not scalable so you keep it at a controllable scale mm-hmm. and then yes. it's it's a it's it's a fine technique but your end user doesn't know anything about that yeah. that's happening so they they can still live in this immutable right world. Mm-hmm. right yes this is a very very uh, common philosophy in in ocaml land as well so i think this is something that all these more functional languages the ones that care about you writing correct code, using immutability to your advantage, like using side effect freedom to your advantage, mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. recommend. But OCaml is a very permissive language. So it lets you shoot yourself in the foot. So mm-hmm. It's not like Haskell that puts this kind of power suit around you that, that makes it kind of awkward to move at first until you figure out how to operate this. Uh, OCaml is more approachable in this sense. So if you've used an imperative language, you know that, okay, when I write, uh, when I declare a variable, so when I bind an expression to a name, then it gets evaluated. So in Haskell, it wouldn't. So 
Yeah. It would be good to evaluate it anytime later, whenever <laughs> necessary, whenever. Yeah. Uh, Whenever yeah, it's convenient I, I definitely for the appreciated compiler. OCaml's uh, strict evaluation. Is that the right word for it? Strict evaluation, not lazy evaluation yeah. as the default. Um, but And then there is a way to do lazy when you want it in OCaml. And for me, that's, yes. the, that's the right direction is make strict the default lazy if you need it. Um, is there a version of OCaml that runs on the JVM or is that even possible? Uh, that's a common question. Oh, and uh, I don't... Well, now I'm I'm mixing this up with LLVM. Uh, right. So on the mm. yeah on LLVM it's difficult because you don't you have the garbage collector. So an mm. LLVM is not good with garbage. But on the LLVM, on the JVM, I don't know. So there's definitely there's JS of OCaml to compile to JavaScript. There's Melange oh. oh. who compiles OCaml or Reason syntax to uh, JavaScript again. Um, but to Java, there, do you know if there's no. been any OCaml to WASM GC? There's work being done on this. Nice. Mm, that's there's, exciting. Uh, very promising work going on. Cool. Because so that's the kind of PhD student thing. Mm, yeah. That, that seems like that could be a gateway to interoperability. Yeah. Yes. For, so we have high hopes in WebAssembly because it's just a natural way to do things. Yep, and yep. because WebAssembly would unlock writing writing frameworks, like doing something like Svelte, but in OCaml, yeah. fully type safe instead of with types patched on and, and with gaps in, in the type safety. Um, because yeah. I like Svelte. So I really like that you, you it's short. So short, it's readable, so you write HTML, you write your templates as you're used to. Uh, don't yeah. do any funny syntax things. <laughs> yep. And now, if you had a similar thing in OCaml, that would be quite yeah. nice. That would be quite nice. I like mm. that. Um, the In the concurrency world, um, we played with some of the concurrency stuff, and, and it was good. Uh, I didn't get a chance to dive into the the kind of IO libraries, but I did like the idea that the, you could use EIO for kind of the um, algebraic effects, or you could use, I forget the other one, uh, for yeah. yeah, for monadic-based uh, um, mm -hmm. effects. Uh, yeah, and I, I was like, cool, I want to try them both. Um, but what's your take on EIO and, and the kind of uh, algebraic effect style and or direct style well, of effects? and? Well... What I can see is that, well, EIO is the new kit on the block. So, okay. so there is EIO adoption being pushed to see, like, is this the thing that the community will, will do? Is this the thing that will see adoption? Or uh, where is this going? Yeah. Um, I've used EIO, EIO once just to, to write a little example program more or less like just translate someone's go program from twitter so uh, i don't know you know yeah. this dex guy so the one who yeah, sometimes uh, asks really really good questions yeah. and i translated uh, the question about like running running multiple uh, async uh, threads evading uh -huh. them in Which the most concurrently and the really? i'm sure with yeah, I mean, you got to set up channels and and do your go routine. Oh, no, and... it wasn't wasn't so bad. No, actually. it wasn't so bad. No, it wasn't so no. bad. But the OCaml code was not worse than the Go code, so that was yeah. actually pretty pretty fine, I think. 
<laughs> but um, I don't do a lot of this concurrency. So on, yeah. on the Okama Org website, we still use LWT because all okay. our libraries use LWT. Okay. Uh, and when Is they there... migrate to EIO, we will use EIO. Okay. Is there algebraic effects? Like there's not algebraic effects actually in OCaml's language, but somehow EIO was able to create oh, algebraic effects. Oh, there are algebraic like... effects in OCaml's language now. So oh. same patch that landed multicore also added these effects. Huh. But for now, they are untyped. So okay. work on a type system for that is still open research, like finding a good balance between expressiveness and what you have to write in order to type check this. Uh huh. Huh. So um, I assume on your the site that you manage <laughs> about OCaml, <laughs> um, you probably have a list of companies that use it. Yeah. Well, we have a job listing board on OCaml.org oh, where you board. can see see quite a few companies who may be hiring, but depends. You know, some so, of these companies are, are of the sort of like, okay, we have, we have a we have a listing just so that we can snatch up promising candidates as they come to us. Uh, huh. Well, um, so what is the like if a company is using OCaml, do they find that they need to take you know, pro some other programmer and train them. Are they hiring it. Haskell programmers? And or, well, yeah, or is, is that... Or, or Jane Street for sure has to because they are very large. So Jane Street, as I am told, has around 900 or more OCaml programmers. Okay. So they do have a certain churn and a need for OCaml programmers and they do extensive in-house training to get them up mm -hmm. to speed, also up to speed with their own internal, very advanced processes, which are partially aligning now with the broader ecosystem as uh, tooling improvements are made. So, uh, mm -hmm. for smaller yeah. companies, I, I don't know. They just it's, hire people away from They James just speed. hire people who, <laughs> who are around. So, they hire people who already know OCaml most likely right. because okay. they don't have this intense uh, pipeline. Mm -hmm. Atari does. They they do hire both, so I, okay. I was one of the no OCaml people. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, but but Haskell Haskell is really a, a keyword that that gets you somewhere. So if you can write template Haskell, you yeah. you're already in a good position to be hired by these kinds of companies that okay. do OCaml, F Sharp, or Scala, or such, because you've kind of demonstrated, okay, you, you managed to breach the, the Haskell adoption barrier. Hmm. Yeah. So the career path for people that are into Haskell is OCaml or Rust <laughs> at this point. Oh, yeah. Rust, Rust is nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, huh. I'm enjoying it. Um, have we missed anything? I feel like we've kind of covered your journey, the OCaml language, a little bit about the features, um, the exciting things. Anything on yeah, the no, like, future of pretty... OCaml that's worth highlighting? Like, what, like what's on coming? the future that... of OCaml? Well, what's coming? I mean, we really have to get this ecosystem more complete. So uh, the future, it depends a lot on what we do, I guess. Yeah. You're creating the future right now. Right, right. We're creating the future and we're having to make these kind of decisions. Like for me, the personal decision would be to, okay, do I do I stay more like behind the scenes or do I go down the road of like becoming more of the community manager of OCaml, like 
organizing things or like encouraging and um, bringing people together to build yeah. the kind of projects and the kind of frameworks and libraries that people need in order to have a happy experience with OCaml. Yeah, it's a um, good I question of like, like so, you're, you're in a position where you can invest your time to grow OCaml and what where should you put that investment yes and exactly it's kind of a fun place to be <laughs> like exactly. is it in documentation is it in tooling is it in libraries is it in you know there's all these different parts of the ecosystem that you could invest yeah. into and so, what, so the great part is the most impact <laughs> right the great part is that it's not me alone making yeah, these kinds of decisions <laughs> so uh but they really need so so okama really just needs people to come together and and yeah. have fun uh well it sounds like you just answered your question <laughs> yeah <laughs> bringing people so. together mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> nice cool. well yeah anything else no i don't know so that cool. was really well, cool I, um i will continue my explorations with ocaml i have a little obstacle course for concurrency yes. called easy racer and i mm -hmm. do want to try to build the ocaml version of easy racer it's a pretty so good maybe test. you and i could uh work together on oh, that yeah that sounds yeah. cool so yeah. so are you are you doing this publicly somewhere oh yeah yep yeah it's on my github we've got implementations in scala rust go TypeScript. oh that's great kotlin java you know we got all sorts python. of different python. We, did a python we did get a python working one working um i'll send it to you and maybe we, maybe yes, we work absolutely. together on the do send it to me i am yeah. very interested in this because because so. then you can compare well and also it shows you does a language library system support even this right, yes. particular approach and then and also it's been good because it's created it's sort of a list of uh here's the kinds of things that you probably are going to need if you're building something with concurrency mm -hmm. yeah so it yeah. sounds like a great reference too it is. like when you know how to do this in go for example mm -hmm. then you can see oh okay so that's the go code and now this is the corresponding yes, exactly o camel that helps a lot i think Mm -hmm. So specifically for people who learn by by doing and by seeing, by imitating, instead of by reading the manual. <laughs> right. And I like these people because they're yeah. just busy building stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's really that's cool. for me. I gotta <laughs> gotta write some code to actually yeah. understand it. Yeah, that's true. Um, awesome. Well, all right. Sabine, thanks for joining us and thanks for all your work on building the OCaml community and um, making it awesome. <laughs> So. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope you will have a lot of fun, whatever you do next. And I will check out your repository. This is looking <laughs> okay. so exciting. Awesome. Great. All right. Thanks. Bye.